So um, in a past life, I used to do a, a fair amount of conference speaking. And years ago, I was invited to a large uh, gathering of singles uh, from really all over the southeast. And, uh, you know, there's a consistent awkwardness in doing those things. There's a lot of people that you don't necessarily know. Uh, there are details to remember. Every group is different, etc. But on this occasion, I was kind of scrambling around to cover those details. And as I got to the front of the stage, I realized that I had forgotten my wireless microphone. And so I was beginning to talk. The sound tech who was running the booth in the back was, uh, ran forward to the front of the conference place where I was, rightly so, and told me to put my mic on. Well, I was a little bit embarrassed. So I did what every Christian speaker would do. I took the opportunity to insult him. I said out loud, I was like, wow, I'm so absent-minded that the sound tech has to remind me to put my microphone on. No offense, Chris. The crazy thing was, it was a throwaway comment that I barely even remembered until after my presentation was over when a young lady approached me and she said, look, I don't want to tell you your business, but while you were preaching, I, I just was so distracted by that hurtful jab that you delivered towards the poor sound tech guy do you think that was appropriate? And of course, to make things worse, you don't know what my topic was that night? <laughs> my topic was respecting other people who are created in the image of God. How do you define irony, right? And of course, I did my best to apologize to the young lady. And, I, and before the, I spoke at the next event, I apologized publicly to the sound tech. But you know, as I thought about it afterwards, the problem that I had with myself was just how glib I was about what I had said. What struck me was the, the effortlessness with which I had said something like that to someone and frankly, honestly, continues to unsettle me. And the reason I go into that story is because you're missing a huge aspect of Christianity, I would say, when you miss the persistently relational nature of it. And what I mean by that is that God places infinitely more emphasis on how you treat your neighbor than on all the little man-made rules that we kind of prop up as if it's Christianity today. You know, we can get so bent out of shape at our political favorite political argument of the day and still turn around and violently mis mistreat people in our own family, not the least of which is the family of God. But why does God care about our relationships this much? I think it's because in his own revealed self-definition, he is an us as much as he is an I. That is, God is a trinity existing from all eternity in a glorious fellowship of the three members of the trinity. And therefore, every interaction that you have with other human beings that are created in that image is central to God's plan for showing the cosmos who he is. Like we've been saying, the Ten Commandments are intended to give. Here's the deal. That night, I failed to honor a fellow human being. And so the Sixth Commandment sort of lays down this vital plank of a Christian worldview by daring to suggest that every single human life is inexpressibly valuable. So in unpacking that, I want to look at three things as per usual. I want to talk about what it means to live with the idea of the image of God, then look at what it means to take life away, and then finally what it means to give life away. Let's look first of all at this whole idea of living with the image of God. Uh, when we were married, I'll never forget Ginger sitting down with me and saying, okay, look, in the event that we come home and our house is on fire, 
Job number one is to rush in and get the children. And I thought to myself, all right, note to self. <laughs> she said, job number two is to go in and get the photo albums. Now, here's the reason why. We have reams of photo albums that catalog just about every single detail of our children's uh, early development and growth. And the reason why Ginger feels that way, and that I've certainly grown to feel that same way, is that it's very hard to throw away a picture of your children. Because there's almost an intrinsic value, is there not, in seeing your own image in your children. You connect with them in that way. And so the clear teaching of Scripture is that every single human being is created, as the Bible says, in God's image. You see it most clearly in Genesis 1, 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. What's interesting, though, is you get an interesting unpacking of that idea in Genesis chapter 6 when you get to the flood narrative, great Noah flood story. And so in going there, play with a little Bible trivia with me for a second. Why did God allow the flood to happen? Why did he judge the earth in that way? You could probably come up with a lot of answers. Well, God's people were being disobedient. Well, they were idolatrous or whatever. But what the text actually says in chapter 6, verse 11 is this. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Why? Because the earth was filled with violence. It was violence against each other that was the reason that motivated God to see fit to judge the earth because they were failing to respect each other. That's why the flood happened. And I think this is exactly why when the flood is over and the flood subsides and God sort of makes this, this covenant with Noah about promising never to do that again, that he says in chapter 9, verse 5, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. There it is again. Now look, this is not my point right now this morning to have a discussion on the topic of capital punishment. So be thankful. I just simply want you to note how valuable every human life is in the Bible. So valuable that I heard one preacher put it this way. He said, life is so valuable that life can only be paid for in its own currency. In other words, these ancient Near Eastern societies in which Moses was writing were outrageously violent. We know this. Someone would come and accidentally kill a member of someone's family. And that individual would then go and murder the arrest of that other person's family. There was no equity in that culture. But God is saying, among my people, every single individual person is of infinite value. Why? Because you're created in the image of God. Every soul sitting in this room has intrinsic value and unspeakable dignity because of this fact. And because God delights in seeing himself in his children, he says, you've got to have the same care and protection, just like Ginger's pictures. The point is the Bible says that every person is immortal, and therefore they bear a huge weight of glory inside of them, which means you cannot not quote C.S. Lewis in his wonderful little essay on the weight of glory. Listen to this. It's kind of a long quote, but it's worth it. He says, maybe it's possible to think too much of your own potential glory hereafter in heaven, but it is impossible 
to too often or too deeply think about that of your neighbors. The weight of my neighbor's glory should be daily laid on my back. It is a serious thing to live in a society of immortals. To remember that millions of years from now, the dullest and most uninteresting person that you may meet in a day may one day be an incredible creature who, if you saw them now the way they will be then, you would be strongly tempted to worship them. Or a horror as you might only now meet in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degrees, helping each other along to one of these two destinies. Wow. It is therefore in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the proper amount of awe and circumspection that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal Nations and cultures and arts and civilizations, those are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Don't you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, a hundred billion years from now, Maybe our sun will have burned out. Maybe the mountains will have worn down and, and the seas evaporated away. But the person sitting next to you will still be here. That's the value. Okay, so return to me to my little conference gig. Because what, what unnerved me was after making that public insult, what unnerved me was my carelessness. And I feel no doubt that at that moment I gave kind of the I don't know, the wannabe comedian's forever excuse. Hey, it was just a joke, man, lighten up. But here's the deal. Having insulted a human being, by transitive principle, I insulted God. I insulted him. Why? Because God takes it personally when we insult his image. The great reformer John Calvin put it this way. He says, our neighbor bears the image of God. To use him, abuse him, or misuse him is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. Wow. Look, before we move on to get to the sixth commandment here, I think it's worth asking a couple of questions. Do people feel valued by you? Do people having spent time with you sense that you take them seriously? How cavalier are we with insults, insinuations, put-downs? How quick am I to believe a bad report about somebody else? And what's up with that? Do people go away with the thought that I think highly of them or that I'm in competition with them? Because Christian communities are supposed to be places where our intrinsic value is constantly affirmed. Why? Because we're created in the image of God. That's the root and the foundation for the sixth commandment. Okay, so now we're ready to unpack it. And remember, every one of these commandments has a positive and a negative thrust. So the negative side is we are never to take life away from other image bearers. So what does that look like? Well, a couple of things here. I don't think you can really unpack that command until you see the way Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. 
Now look, we're going to do a super deep dive on that very topic when we get there in the spring. But for the purpose of our discussion this morning, listen to Matthew 5, 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Look, Jesus is correcting, by the way, a human tradition that had grown up around these commands. And we know that because otherwise, if he was quoting from the, from the actual command, he would have said, it is written. No, what Jesus is saying is, is that you can break this commandment not just by the physical act of murder, but you can break it in thought, in word, and in deed. That's a great little outline. Let's unpack that. What does it mean, first of all, to take life away from someone in your thoughts? Well, of course, the teachers of the law were simply saying that as long as you didn't actually kill somebody, then you were in the clear. But Jesus says, look, even if you get angry at someone, you've killed them in their heart, which I realize sounds a bit extreme to people. But you've got to realize that word that, that we have translated anger there in Matthew 5, when it's literally translated means to swell up. What Jesus is talking about is that, is that slow burn, that growing dislike, that kind of settled low disdain for another per, per, uh, person that may or may not come out, uh, out of our bodies or out of our lives. But can't you see the genius of this? Because Jesus is saying, this is where murder begins. Every single one of us has the acorn of hatred and anger inside of our hearts. But just because it hasn't grown up into the full tree of actual murder doesn't imply that you somehow lack the talent to do so. It's all still there. And so therefore, we got to get to the root of the problem so that we're not superficial about our problems in human hatred. Secondly, how do we, how do we sort of take life away in our words? Well, Jesus says that the best way to see if your thoughts are heading towards hatred is to listen to what comes out of your mouth. In Matthew 5, 22, Jesus warns about calling someone, you fool. It's very interesting that that word fool uh, is translated as the, word, uh, as the Greek word moros, from which we get the word moron. Uh, literally translated, it means empty head. In other words, when you speak to people as if they are inconsequential, as if they don't have a brain in their heads, Jesus says you're murdering them. <laughs> as I was reading through this, I started thinking, man, do I not want to stand before God's judgment on the basis of how I have spoken to the person in the car ahead of me who just cut me off in traffic. <laughs> how terrifying. But Jesus says in Luke 6, uh, 6, 45, that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So if you want to know what's in your heart, just look at what comes out of your mouth. We have these effective filters to sort of filter out what we're actually saying, don't we? We really don't hear ourselves. But Jesus is saying every demissive comment, every word spoken in contempt, every lie that's told to help adjust someone else's position slightly downward, it's all tantamount to murder. I've defaced the image of God in someone. James 3.9 says we shouldn't use our tongues to curse people because with it we bless the Lord, our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Brothers, these things ought not be. Thirdly, how do we take life away indeed? Well, I think the interesting thing about how Jesus sort of ends that section in Matthew 5 is that he warns us that if you ever find yourself at church 
and you're invited to come forward and you remember that someone has something against you, he says, leave it right there. Go back, be made right with them, and then come and offer your gift to the Lord. That's a fascinating way to unpack that. Because if you notice, it's not something that you did to them. It's if you know that they did something to you. In other words, Jesus wants us to take the initiative. We, we don't just violate this command when we sort of actively hurt other people, but also when we fail to do something that would help someone experience their life in a better way. Proverbs, not, Proverbs 3, 27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Uh, Protestant reformer Martin Luther, all the reformers are getting good press today, says this about this command. He says, This commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor, or, though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. If you send a person away naked when you could clothe them, you've let them freeze to death. If you see another hunger and don't feed them, you've let them starve. Likewise, if you see someone condemned to death or a similar peril and don't save them, although you knew ways and means to do so, then you have killed them. Therefore, God rightly calls all persons murderers who do not offer counsel and aid to men in peril of body and life. He will pass a most terrible sentence upon them on the day of judgment. As Christ himself has declared, I was hungry and thirsty and you gave me no food or drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Look, what's the point? I realize that when we get to the sixth commandment, a lot of us, especially in our present political climate and election year, want to race to the scourge, dare I say the holocaust of abortion that our nation continues to struggle under. We want to race to that, and I'm with you on that. But please recognize that this commandment says that we must have at least equal concern for the lives of those around us who are on the other side of the womb. To be pro-life is to be more than just pro-birth. It's pro-all of life. In other words, don't politicize your obedience and miss what God is actually requiring. We are not allowed to take life away when it's in our power to help. Okay, so that's taking life away. The positive side of the command, thirdly and finally, is that we are commanded to give our lives away. And I think it's helpful to look at that in thought and word and deed as well. Let's look at those three things. What does it mean to give our life away in our thoughts? Well, look. If anger is at the root of murder, it means that forgiveness is a Christian's daily bread, is it not? In other words, the only way to begin to eat at the hatred in my heart is by remembering that my sin is just as bad as theirs. In other words, the best way to sort of diffuse hatred over time is to begin to rehearse the things that drive them crazy about me. <laughs> That's the best way to forgive. And this is not just sort of a mind trick here. I think it's the psychology of the gospel. I think one of the only ways in which we learn to really forgive people is to remember the debt of the offense that I had towards God. What did it cost him to forgive me? And out of that abundance, how do I forgive others? When you go home this afternoon, read through Matthew 18, 21 and following and the parable of the ungrateful servant. And you'll get sort of the inner mechanics of that, uh, of that command. 
when I, when I was in campus minister, I used to have all these conversations uh, with freshmen who were experiencing roommates for the first time. And because they're experiencing roommates, they're experiencing roommate problems. And they would say, can I meet with you? I just got to talk. My roommate is driving me crazy. And there were about two or three times where I actually had the, um, the self-consciousness to say, I tell you what, I would love to meet with you, but here's what I'd like you to do before we do. Would you send me an email of the three things that drive your roommate crazy about you? Now look, there was only a couple times where people actually took me up on that, but on both occasions, they canceled their appointment to meet with me. Why? Because it neutralized it. It began to neutralize their irritation when all of a sudden we began to identify with their frustration. So forgiveness has got to be what happens in thought. Secondly, we give our life away in our words. Man, this is all over the Bible. But our words are such powerful tools to bring life to other people. You know, we're, we're going to discover this big time when we talk about the power of the ninth commandment here in about a month or so. But I actually discovered long ago that the only time it seems when we actually give words of life to each other are at wedding rehearsal dinners and funerals. I feel like that's it in our culture. It's crazy. I was at one such rehearsal dinner years ago where a student came up to me in tears after his rehearsal dinner, having been showered with all these beautiful blessings from his friends. And he said, that was the best night of my life. And then he said, it seems like we should kind of be doing this more often. Yes, we should. When was the last time that you took up words, crafted words, caring words, thought out words, and gave them to a friend of yours? Simply to build them up. We can't avoid it just because it feels awkward. Sometimes the giving of words can actually be healing to our souls as well been having this discussion, I think, with some of the teenage boys. Small little side application for those of you that are teenage boys at this point. I do think that when you're a teenager, there's a defensiveness that comes around sort of being with other alpha males that can oftentimes kind of trend our conversation to really only be about sarcasm. Have you noticed this, gentlemen? If you're not yet to teenage years, it's coming, I promise you. But Ephesians 4.29 says, look, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only that which is good for building others up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Why is that so awkward? That's a great question to ask. But finally, we not only sort of have to give our life away in thought and word, but also in deed. The sixth commandment, I think, is there to push us out of ourselves and into our community to find where suffering is happening. What happens when the sixth commandment kind of roots itself in your heart is you begin to have these insane conversations where you're actually not waiting on the world to come to you, but you're seeking it out. You might even be driving home and have a crazy conversation with your spouse of what it might look like to sort of say, we're going to actually go and become career missionaries. Is that so crazy? God calls people to do that all the time. What does it look like for us to go to a place where I know there's human suffering and I've got the means to help it? What could I do? I realize that everyone wants to be reached out to, but we, the best way to be approachable is to be, a, is to be one who approaches people yourself. I think this is how the gospel employs it in the same methods. This is what 1 John 4.19 means when it says, we love because he first loved us. In other words, there's something about the gospel that allows us to initiate with people, with healing in our hands, 
without fear. How? Well, here's it simple. Because Jesus was murdered. That's what happened. Jesus was murdered because he knew that murder was in the heart of every one of his people. Everybody here included. (laughs) And he realized that life could only be paid for in its own currency. And that's good news for us. Because what it means is, is no matter what hatred you're noticing in your heart this morning, God can take it and transform it. He can turn it into something that heals rather than destroys. I was listening to my good friend Brian Habig preach a while back. And he had this fantastic illustration of an article that I went and looked up myself in the Atlantic about a writer who had gone to the famous uh, jazz uh, place in New York called the Village, uh, the Village Vanguard, only to find that the great trumpet master, Wynton Marsalis, was playing trumpet that night. Can you imagine? Strolling into the Village uh, Vanguard, and there's Wynton Marsalis. And he said it was just an unbelievable performance as he sat there and took it all in. But the one that really moved him the most was this melancholy rendition of I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. And the writer writes as he got to the very end of the song, he was playing those last few long notes. And the writer said there was just these patient, long notes coming off of his trumpet, so much so that you could just hear a pin drop in the room. He said it was absolutely a magical moment until suddenly someone's cell phone went off. And he said, all of a sudden, he said he wrote in his notes, magic ruined. (laughs) But he said what was crazy about that moment was, is Marsalis, of course he heard it, everybody heard it, suddenly began to play the ringtone. And then he played it again. And then he kind of developed it a little bit. And then he began to improvise on it. And then suddenly towards the end, he weaved it back with the song that he was playing And he said that by the end of the song, the entire room was sat there with their jaws completely open. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. Hey, look, Marsalis was surprised by the ringtone. He was surprised by the cell phone going off. The beauty of Christianity is God is not surprised by your hatred. He's not surprised by what he discovers inside your hearts. But here's the craziness. On the cross, Jesus comes in and he weaves that and brings more beauty out of us because of it. Acts 2.23, the apostle Peter, after the Holy Spirit was poured out, said, look, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you murdered. See what he's saying? You murdered him, but you know what? It was a part of the absolute foreknowledge and knowledge of God that it all happened. What's Peter saying? He's saying God sends his son. We kill him. It's the most tragic, horrible interruption ever. But God takes it, doesn't he? And he becomes a master artist. And he begins to weave it in out to create a healing in us so that we can stop devouring each other and start building one another up. Jesus was murdered, but he atoned for all of the murderers who murdered him. And when you carry that truth in your heart, does it not begin to eat away at your hatred? Does it start to erode your anger? Can I begin to sort of let it go? And our prayer is that we would become that kind of community. Is it not? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you transform us? Because if there is anything that is marked our last nine months, we can attribute it to anything. We can attribute it to being cooped up. We can attribute it to being frustrated, 
for being sick and tired of all the things going on and the constant noise. But Father, we've been angry. And in so doing, we have looked at those in the image of God and we've hated them. We wish they would go away. We've thought of terrible things happening to them. We've thought of crushing them. And Father, to the degree that your people have been party to it, we are guilty. And so we come to you, the great master artist. And Lord Jesus, we approach your cross even this morning, knowing that you are the great master artist who can weave even our hatred into your gospel so that we can be freed from having to devour one another and learn to give our lives away. Father, would you do that in us? We long to see our salvation in that. We ask it all in Jesus' name.